0: Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then chapter 2, verses 14 and 18, you'll find the text printed on the slides in front of you, the screens, but also in your bulletins if you want to follow along. Hebrews chapter 1, and also an excerpt from chapter 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in the times, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And the appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made kings. the The sun is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things like it, by his powerful will. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helped, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like fully human in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word. Of God. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would send your Spirit. Out and make your word powerful in our lives. Uh, You you say, even in what we just read, that you sustain all things by your powerful word, your voice penetrates every heart, gives life, brings conviction, and so Father, Son, and Spirit, don't only help us, but receive this as a moment of worship, too, in the way that we Speak about the in the way that we speak about you, in the way that we hear, listen to your word. May that also be pleasing to you. So come, receive this time. Bless this. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing uh, this morning in our study of the Apostles' Creed. In fact, this is a summary of foundational Christian beliefs. That were written, articulated about 1500 years ago. So it's an old document, an old summary, and an old confession. As we mentioned before, the Apostles' Creed is divided into three different sections organized around the three persons of the Trinity God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Today, we are beginning the second section, which confesses belief in God the Son. Son of God. We read it earlier, but this is what it reads the section. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And even at that, if we listen carefully, we'll hear that those words tell a story. And it sounds something like this In the beginning was God. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son of God was eternal, had no beginning, was not made, always was, was God, is God, existing from eternity past until one day He put on human flesh, a human body, human limitations, as He entered into time and space. He entered into our world, and he did so both by ordinary and extraordinary means. He was born by a normal human mother, like all of us. Her name was Mary, and his name was Jesus. But this baby was conceived not by the union of two people, but by a miracle of God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the virgin. And in this way, the Apostle's Creed affirms two crucial things about Jesus. His divinity and his humanity. We're going to briefly look at each of those things. So first, his divinity. Jesus is truly and fully God. We know this by Jesus' own words about himself in the New Testament. Like when he claims to have authority to forgive all sins. Who has that to God? Like when he claims to have existed 2,000 years earlier than his own contemporaries, when he said before Abraham was, I am. There, even assigning to himself the Old Testament personal name of God, I am, who I am. His Jewish listeners knew exactly what he was claiming. They picked up stones to kill him for his blasphemy. But we also know that Jesus' full divinity is true by the testimony of the New Testament authors, and the author of Hebrews that we're looking at today is one of them. In verse 2 we're told this, that God has spoken to us by his Son. The Son was a gift of personal communication of God, God revealing Himself to us in a manner that we could understand, comprehend, receive. It's why in the Gospel of John, Jesus is called the Word of God, the personal communication of God Himself. We're told also that the Son was appointed heir of all things. Now that's the language of loyal inheritance. All things belong to the Son. He's the King. We're told through Him also He made the universe. Last week we talked about God's role as creator of heaven and earth. Well, now we're told here in Hebrews that Jesus was the agent of creation. He wasn't just sitting on the sidelines, Jesus created all things told in verse three, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. He shares glory with God. Therefore, he's the exact representation of His being of God's being. Just like we heard in Colossians several months ago, Colossians one, that Christ is the image of God. You want to see what God's like? God, who you can't see, your Oh, how can you know what God is like? But well, look in the face of Jesus. That's That's how you know, by seeing his character, his priorities, his nature, his heart. We're told that he sustains all things by his powerful word. Sustains all things in this world by his powerful word. How powerful a word must he have that he can uphold all things seen and unseen. I don't know if you feel like your word is that effectual, right? Does everything you desire and demand happen? No. We're frustrated. I am. You have to repeat yourself or sometimes you get ignored, right? Of course it happens. It's part of human life together. Jesus' word never fails. Jesus' commands are effectual. And we're told He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. In other words, He shares heaven's God. In other words, here's what we're being told. Jesus, the Son of God, is eternally one with God, the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is co-equal in glory, power, and majesty. He is God. And this is why the, Apostle Creed, the Apostles' Creed affirms that Jesus is Lord. This way of speaking about Jesus is popular among Christians today, so sometimes we lose the sense of what that phrase even means. Jesus is Lord. In fact, we lose how radical it was in the first century when they first uttered it, when early Christians first confessed it. Do you know that one of the most common confessions in the Roman Empire was Caesar is Lord? Acknowledging him not only to be the supreme Authority in public and private life to whom you need to give your full allegiance, but also even acknowledging that there's sort of a divine quality to Caesar that you need to bow your knee to. That was the most common confession in that day. I wonder what the equivalent today might be. If Caesar is Lord. Here sponsor in these Christians from the margins of society a crucified Messiah, that they claim rose again, and here they are saying, Jesus is Lord. What does that word Lord even mean? Well, the word Lord in Greek, kyrios, means ruler, master, sovereign. So what then does it mean to acknowledge that Jesus really is God, right? The radiance of God, co-equal with God, seated at the right hand of the majesty. What does it mean then to... Acknowledge him, to love Him as Lord for everyday life. Well, a couple things. First, allegiance. Do we acknowledge Jesus as being our highest object of glory? Where we essentially say He is the one that governs my life. He is the one that defines who I ultimately am. He's the center of my identity. He's the highest of my love. I owe all of myself to him because he gave all of himself to me and for my salvation. It means allegiance. But secondly, it also means assurance. Jesus is Lord, is a word of comfort, a confession of comfort. Why? Because if he's the Supreme Lord, ruler of all things, that means he's in control of everything. And there's nothing that we need to hear more than that in a world of chaos and hurt. Jesus is in control of all things. In the 16th century, there was a catechism, a, a confession that was written called the Heidelberg Catechism. And it opens with one of most helpful articulations of comfort and God that we have in all of Christian history. It asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And part of the answer reads like this. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death. Belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head. Without the will of my Father in heaven, in fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Literally two days ago, when my kids asked that, how many hairs do you have in your head? I said, I don't know. Because I don't know. And then I said, You know that God actually says in the Bible, Jesus said it himself, that God knows exactly how many numbers of hairs you have on your head. Like you asked that question. That's a good question. I don't know the answer. God actually knows that answer. One kid said, wow. The other kid said, that's kind of weird. I'm not tell you. Comfort. Comfort. There's not a detail of your life that God is not aware There's not a trouble in your life that he's not paying attention to. You. There's not a source of chaos in your life, in your life that he doesn't already have cut in the Jesus is Lord. You can say, Amen. Comfort, assurance, confidence in His glory. Jesus the Lord, is Lord means obedience, it means assurance, it also means authority. It means that Jesus actually has authority over our lives. Do we recognize that authority? Do we live as if it's true? We give a lot of uh, uh, we pay attention to a lot of authority in our lives. My son just finished up his little league baseball season, and I was just paying attention recently to how much we really almost like quake at our knees before the call of the umpire, right? Balls and strikes and who's out and who's not. In a baseball game, the umpire, despite the complaints of everyone about how the calls are being made, still has the final say as to what is happening in the game. And in fact, you go to the admire a question, you better address them with respect, otherwise you might get tossed out of the game. Sir, right? Sir, you ask the question, and we do this in life. We do pay heed to the authority of human figures, and rightly so, we should. But it occurs to me that oftentimes, we do so primarily because of our pragmatic desires. Right? You stay within the rules of the IRS. Maybe you respect the IRS, maybe you don't, but you do it mainly because you don't want to a fine or you don't want to go to jail. Uh, you actually pay heed to the authority of the umpire because you don't want to get kicked out of the game, or you don't want to mess up your kid's game. Uh, you actually show respect to a person that has some kind of authority, a teacher, a boss, whoever it might be, oftentimes because of the pragmatic, practical consequences that we fear, and I think we're like right that we God as well, Because we're only thinking about the consequences. We're only thinking about what might go wrong in my life if I don't do this or that. Friends, have you paid heed to the authority of God? To the authority of Jesus? Jesus is Lord. Simply because you love Him. Simply because you fear Him in the best sense of respect and awe. Not just the way that you sort of pay heed to a human umpire. Jesus isn't an umpire. He's your Lord, and he calls you so. We should listen to him and follow him as the supreme authority, as Lord over our lives. Not only his person, but also the things that he has said and has commanded. That we owe him our full obedience. For example, when he has said in Matthew 18 that we need to forgive people, he commanded us so, and to forgive them 70 times 7, again and again and again. Like when he tells us that sexual intimacy should be shared and exchanged only in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. He has said so in Matthew 19 like when he says that we will be judged by how we treat the poor, as he said in Matthew 25, are these things that we are actually paying heed to, acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, even when it makes our minds spin, even when it contradicts the norms and the preferences of our world and culture? Because we know that we owe Jesus our obedience, because Jesus is Allegiance, assurance and Is there some area where you are resisting the worship of Jesus? Is there some place where you're only seeing it as a threat to your independence and freedom and instead need to turn the corner and see it as a gesture of His love for you? His invitation for you to live a life that is truly life and more than that, a life that is truly human, which brings us to our ourselves is humanity. (laughs) Jesus is not only fully and truly God, he's also fully and truly human. When he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born in the Virgin Mary, as the Creed said, the eternal Son became just like us in our humanity. Two statements in Hebrews chapter 2 that we read emphasize this point chapter 2, verse 14, we're told this, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Now, if we're going to dig back behind those English words to the ancient words that this was originally written in, that word, too, he too shared in their humanity, it means in the same way one lexicon I was looking at said, it's a word that conveys similarity that amounts to equality. Uh, Jesus was really, truly like us in our humanity. And that word shared, it means partook, participated in, belonged to. Uh, Several words layered on top of each other so that the author of Hebrews tries to convey how much it was that Jesus identified with our humanity in becoming just like us. Then he repeats himself in verse 17 we told he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. Because chapter four would say, except for our sin, like us in every way. I don't think we believe the Bible in this See that now here's this, and it's easy to start like us. And we start to think it's making an exaggerated claim. Kind of like that little segment. You aware know where this, the entertainment magazine Us Weekly, uh, no one else reads that? There's a section in there, it's so silly. You've seen different versions of it. And it's called Stars. The celebrities, the stars, they're just like us, and they have some picture, usually shared on Instagram or something, or maybe a photographer, a paparazzi topic group, doing something that looks just normal, you know, things that normal people would do, and then there's some silly caption that says, you know, they're, they're doing just what you and I do. So, for example, uh, recently there was a, a shot of Drew Barrymore reading in bed with a and, and 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 the caption said uh, with great bravado and and astonishment, they read in bed, just like you, the stars. And then there was another picture, Pedro Pascal, a man born in the morning paint, taking a call after leaving the gym, carrying a little tote bag for some reason, another reason. And here's the caption. I mean, Pedro's on the phone, right? Here's the caption. They chat on the phone. Celebrity-like, who knew, right? Another one, Tashia Adams, a bachelorette fame. She's, uh, uh some, some of you nodding your head because you know her, Rubo really well, apparently. She's in a grocery store, in this picture, and she's uh, looking at a loaf of hero bread. And here's the caption, they eat low-carb bread. They right? Stars, they're just like us. And of course, as you're reading this, you know, it's sort of a joke. It's sort of a silly thing. You know, you're sort of muttering to yourself. That's funny because they're nothing like us, right? Or, you know, their lives are nothing like mine. And sometimes when the Bible says things like Jesus, just like us, we're like, no, he's not. We're like, yeah, I maybe he ate a little part of her, too, maybe, but Beyond that, right, of course, he didn't look like anything like my friend. But It's just not true. The Son of God entered into the flesh and he truly experienced life in every way that he experienced life in all his dreams and his dreams. Except for our experience of sin, but even including our temptation to sin. Jesus suffered as we suffer. He flourished as we flourished. He did life in the mundane as we do life as well. This is the Jesus of the intimacy of his incarnation. Why? Why did the Son of God become like us in every way? Why did he put on flesh and blood? Well, the Hebrews author points us to two purposes, two reasons. The first reason. And the ultimate reason is to serve as our substitute. We're told in verse 14, this happened, he did this, he put on flesh and blood, why? So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. In other words, he had to become flesh and blood in order that he might Die for our sins. Why? Because a bodiless, eternal, infinite God, who is spirit, cannot die. And so in order to suffer the curse of sin, he has to become die old, Mortal. Right? Human. So that he might die like us, and in so doing, satisfying the penalty of the law for our sin, breaking the curse of death, and making it such that death is no longer the threat both to the end of our human existence but also the doorway to eternal judgment from God which is what we deserve for our sins but instead we're free from that fear, the author says because death is now a portal to paradise death is defanged and becomes an opportunity a hallway, a doorway into the presence of God unfettered, unobstacled Eternal joy. And then verse 17 says this. Why did the Son of God become a human being just like us in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people? Not only did he become mortal in order to be able to die for our sins to suffer the penalty that we deserve, But he, in doing so, then becomes our substitute. He can represent us as a true human being. He can actually stand in our place as a human being, dying for human beings, rising for human beings, because he was a human being. Down the street in Congress, of course, Every so often you have this process whereby a new person wants to stand for an election and what they need to do in order to qualify as a representative of some district in Nebraska or in New York or in Idaho, they need to establish that they actually are from the people whom they choose to represent. And so they need to do what? Establish residency. They need to show that they are actually one of the people whom they represent. And on that basis, then, they're able to pass votes and make decisions on behalf of their constituents. What was Jesus doing for the 33 years that he was living a normal human life? He was establishing residency. He was meriting his right to stand before God as our representative. He's from our congressional district called Earth, called human life. Because he's experienced everything that we have experienced so that he might stand in the court of heaven and die on our behalf and live on our behalf. He was a human being like us, and that's why he could save us. That's why he could atone for our sins. That's why his death actually counted as our death, and his life counted as our life. But there's a second. Not only to serve as our substitute, but Jesus became a human being in every way to offer us sympathy and support. I'm going to close with this. One. Verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus stepped into the human experience and experienced everything that we experience. And so now, to this day, he is able to help you in need and all the struggles and trials we face as human beings because he went there before us. In chapter four, verse 16, the King James Version reads this, he touched with with the feelings, he was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Jesus is able to commiserate with us in our trials. He's not out of touch with your struggles, not because of the distance of celebrity or even divinity, but rather because of his humanity, Jesus personally understands and intimately identifies with all of your sufferings and your struggles to love. That there's nothing that you are experiencing today that if you bring it to Jesus, he'll look back at you with a blank face of ignorance and detachment. You'll only be met with a warm softened face of empathy and love. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, entering human flesh, He could be compassionate, but maybe ignorant. God from afar, caring for your sufferings, but when you say, my right arm really hurts today, He's like, well, oh, I've never had an arm but I'm so sorry, could say that. Or, a human in every way, a guy with arm pain, but cold and uncaring. So, here's your high here here is Jesus, having experienced all of your infirmities, all your failures, all your struggles, all your harshness, full of eternal compassion full of bleeding heart care for you and ready to offer you help. Just yesterday, my son stepped on first base trying to run out of the throw. And he was say, bang his foot on the base to make sure that he beat that throw. In. And then tweaked his back. Immediately, he kind of looked up and said, ow, and later enslave me, Dad, I kind of hurt my back. And look, nine-year-olds don't hurt their backs. Right, this doesn't happen. So I wanted to make sure he understood how I feel. So I said, yes, then you understand, right? Sometimes people hurt their backs, right? You don't usually hurt your back as a kid, right? But this is exactly what we feel all the time, right? And this is why athletes oftentimes go grab their back and you might be sitting there thinking, why are they Like, what could hurt about your back? And you wouldn't know. But no, 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 this is exactly the thing. Then here's Jesus, who's not distant from your sorrows and sufferings. Every time you say, Jesus, my back, he will always reply to you, Don't you hate that? He will always say to you, I know, I know, I know. Not your back to make your heart, not your heart to make your head, not your head to make your relationships, maybe your This is our great commiseration. Jesus, your high priest. So whether it be your struggle with sickness, or sadness, or loneliness, Jesus understands. Or maybe it's the challenge of making friends, or the tiring frustrations in the daily work. Jesus gets it. Maybe it's the pain of betrayal, false accusations, slander. Jesus has been. Maybe it's the fear of losing a loved one, or the grief of losing a father. Jesus has already walked in your shoes. Maybe it's the difficulty of persevering in your faith to pride, the struggle to make ends meet, disappointment in relationships, anger towards the injustices of our world, the temptation not to forgive but rather to retaliate. The temptation to fall in love with the praise of other people, the temptation to use people with your words, with your body, with your money, rather than serve them and their needs instead of your own. Jesus sympathizes with it all, and even for those of you who are you younger kids, the struggle to listen to your parents. Jesus gets that too. The confusing time of transition that's called puberty. Jesus understands that too. He understands it all. Dear friends, do you see And so when we come to him, we can pray and bring in any one of your struggles and you won't ever be met with a cold stone face, Only with knowledge. Only with humor, Only with care. And more importantly, with specific grace to help you for those specific trials. Because you can go to him and say, Jesus, you went through this. How did you get through it? And he'll say, let me give it to you. Let me give you that grace. Jesus, you went through this pain. You you need to persevere through this too. What did you have? Give me some of that. He says, I will. Let me give you a, a specific dose of my Holy Spirit for the specific trial, struggle, or temptation that you're facing. Because he already went through it all in detail for you. Do you see how that works? So this we pray. Pray and say to him, Jesus, the Bible says you yourself suffered what I'm suffering so you're able to help me. Will you help me in this particular way? You know how it is, Jesus. And on the authority of the Bible, you can, you can guarantee yourself that he is not in his head in agreement and compassion. Because he was made like us in every way to close with the words of Augustine. The word of the Father by whom all the time was created was made flesh and was born in time for us. The maker of man became man, that he the bread might hunger, that he the fountain might thirst, that he the light might sleep, that he the way might be weary by the journey, that he the truth might be accused by false witnesses, that he the judge of the living and the dead might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he justice might be condemned by the unjust, that he discipline might be scourged with bricks, that he, the foundation, might be suspended on a cross, that courage might be weakened, that healer might be wounded, that life might die. So you can go to him, God in flesh and blood, and know that he will help you in your hunger, in your thirst, in your sleeplessness, in your weariness, in your bearing under false accusations. In your hurts and your pains and your loneliness and your brokenness, He will help you in your time of need He loves you. Dear friends, you know it's Jesus? Do you believe in this Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Will you believe? So we ask God to come, open wide to this reality of Jesus. Holy God, Lord and the listener, Lord and the one who leans in towards us when we bring our sufferings, our pains, and temptations. Who is a savior? Draw into to us as we draw near. We pray in Christ's name.